0: Welcome to Standpoints, the podcast, where we explore the Black experience largely through a theoretical lens informed by Black feminisms and from a perspective that valorizes pedagogies and practices of care within Black, Brown, mixed, and intersectional communities. This is our space for living and loving Blackness. We hope that it can be yours too. I'm Andrea Baldwin. In this episode, we address what we are informally calling the Broke Rich Paradigm. For many Black folks who have attained higher education, advanced degrees, especially those of us who are first in our families to do so, and those who have subsequently moved into the workforce at levels that provide a bit more security than previous generations had known in terms of earning money, having access to employer-based health insurance, receiving retirement benefits, there's an expectation of responsibility, sometimes self-imposed, to extend one's means of support around one's family, extended family, and sometimes one's community, and even to one's own detriment. The broke-rich paradigm is essentially the perception that as educated Black folks with relatively good jobs, that is, the ones who have made it, we should be doing better. We should be able to afford a lifestyle equivalent to the cultural expectation surrounding that level of education or professional attainment. But the reality is often that not only have we faced greater obstacles in the attainment of this social and financial status, but now having done so, its spoils are often not ours to enjoy. Joining me today are Nana Brontuo and Jasmine Pachardo. Nana Brantuo is an independent scholar, researcher, and writer based in the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area. Over the last decade, Nana has balanced teaching, facilitation, and advocacy appointments in the nonprofit sector and within higher education institutions. She has held several positions as a policy advocate and strategist, and is an adjunct lecturer at the George Washington University in the International Education Program. She holds a master's degree in curriculum and instruction from the University of Maryland College Park and a bachelor's of arts degree in African Studies from Howard University. Welcome, Nana. Our next guest is Jasmine Pachardo. Jasmine is a dialogue facilitator, educator, higher education diversity professional, and budding researcher. A Black Dominicana, From the South Bronx, she is passionate about holding space for folks to unpack and heal the individual and collective wounds of white supremacy broadly and anti-Black racism, specifically through dialogue. Throughout her career, Jasmine has consulted with national and international organizations in launching her own dialogue initiatives and co-facilitates the Facebook group Non-Black Latinx in Higher Ed, addressing anti-Blackness in Communidad. Currently, she is the assistant director of diversity training and education uni- at the University of Maryland College Park and a doctoral student in higher education, student affairs and international education program. Welcome, y'all. How are y'all doing today?
1: Hello. Hello. Good. Good. Excited. Excited to be sharing space with you both.
2: Right. Absolutely. Looking forward to this.
0: Awesome. And so let's jump right into our conversation today. Um, so from, from your short bios that I just read, we got a brief, a brief background about what you do. Can you tell us a little bit more in detail, what do you do, and also about your journey toward to, to higher education? Um, Jasmine, we'll start with you first. Um, what has your journey been like um, to becoming the, the scholar, activist, educator, facilitator that you are today? Ooh. Um, That's a big
1: question. Um, I'll start with um, a bit about my family, right? So I'm a second generation Dominican immigrant, um, born and raised in the South Bronx, but very much from an immigrant household. Like my first language was Spanish. Mm -hmm. I went through the process of learning English. I went through the process of um, being oriented to what it means um, to do schooling in the U.S. Um, all of my like K-12 educational experience, um, was through Catholic school. And so while my family was, and still is low income and working poor and still living in New York City, um, many of them who either don't have a GED or have a GED, right? They, very few folks have high school degrees, um, or diplomas. Education was a priority in my household. And so my mother knowing knowing what she knew about the public education system in the Bronx um really invested and made significant sacrifices to ensure that I had an education and what she felt was a was a quality education based on what was available in my community and our surroundings um and early on I excelled academically and early on I saw that my family was investing in me and my education in ways that they weren't investing um, in some of my my peers, my cousins, my siblings. Um, my mother struggled deeply um, to pay my tuition, so I was one of those honor students who was regularly being sent home about like every other month for failure to pay tuition fees. Mm-hmm. Um, my family got together um, and had a collection uh, to collect money, or una recoleta, is what we call it in Spanish, um, to be able to pay my tuition fees, so that, I, so that I could stay in school. And so, really early on, I understood, even if it wasn't verbally or explicitly stated, right, that people were really invested in me and in my education. And so, my ability to exceed, to succeed, and excel um, wasn't just about me improving myself, right? It was me doing this for my family. It was. The only real way out um of poverty that I saw because the the things that were being role modeled for me were often um, you know teen pregnancy was going into the military and also realizing that that those were not viable options or options that would allow me to take care of myself, take care of my mother um and so I did all the things I did all the after school programs, I was in all the clubs, did all the honor rolls um and eventually got to Vassar College, where I did undergrad, um, and was a, you know, low black girl from the Bronx um, at a predominantly white institution and was encountering, which feels strange to say coming from New York City, but New York City is a very segregated city, as we know, especially around race and class. But was the first time that I was encountering like Waspy liberal racism, mm. and all forms of that, both the the well intentioned racism, the white savior racism, and even just some blatant forms of segregationists you don't belong here this this space isn't for you um and so I have a really traumatic relationship um to my undergraduate institution um feelings of not belonging, being excluded, and also holding that I understood that being affiliated with my institution gave me some proximity to access, some proximity to power. And so it was very much, as I think back on it now, understanding that it was, I stayed because of a fear of not having access Mm. to that institution and the resources that it offers. Um, and so I stayed there and, and worked for a few years. It, it fueled my decision to go into higher ed because the more that I was there, the more that I understood that this institution um, wasn't actually adding value to me. I was adding value to it. And so how do I use my role and my investment and commitment in education as a way to redistribute and share those resources, share that power and proximity and access. Um, And it's it's an ongoing process, um, but I always try to center where the folks are at the margins, who are the folks who are closest to the pain, right? And what does redistributing these resources look like within the context of my institution? So that was a lot, but a way to introduce that.
0: <laughs> yes, yes, mm-hmm. yes. We starting off with a bang. Mm-hmm. Nana, um, I, I want to ask you that same question, Nana, but I want to preface your question with a statement that when you mm-hmm. and I were talking the other day, you said, people where I'm from do not end up at Howard. And I want you to kind of also talk about mm-hmm. that as you talk about your journey to where you are now as a PhD candidate um, at University of Maryland and all the stuff that you do in terms of facilitation around education um, and also your dissertation topic, which is also about education and higher, higher ed in in particular. Mm.
3: Yes. So first, I just, Jasmine, thank you for that.
2: Um, Just for sharing that. I just, it's just being here and talking to you all and just thinking about the different ways we all exist in the academy and the traumas attached to it is sometimes overwhelming. So I just wanted to take a moment to just kind of center myself. Mm-hmm. But um, I was born in Washington, D.C., and my family are West African immigrants from Ghana and Sierra Leone. And I grew up in a small, like, unincorporated area called Chill of Maryland and basically we're on the Northeast DC Prince George's County borderline and people typically when they hear or Prince George's County is referenced, um, there's a referencing, of it being the wealthiest black County in the country, Mm -hmm. which is true. Mm -hmm. And I definitely did not grow up or live in those pockets of wealth. Um, I was working poor, um, And grew up in a family that was, I think, it was like, when I think about my family, I think of multiple generations of folks trying to find their way out of poverty. Mm -hmm. Um, When I think of my parents' story, they come from poverty, colonial poverty. And they end up in the United States and take on jobs as, they take on jobs as, like, within hospitality, as hotel workers, um, constantly working, working to, I'm trying to think of the best way to do this. This thing is wild. I, I think I said that this would be emotional, but it is. Because um, let me, okay, let me start by saying this. I am still poor. I have always been very great with processing information. I've always been intellectually curious. And that's always been my way to mask my poverty up until today. Um, And I think a lot of that is what, like when we were having that conversation, like people where I end up, or people from where I'm from don't end up at Howard. It's absolutely true. I don't come from the part of Prince George's County where wealth sits. I didn't go to, you know, the um, private schools or the magnet schools. I went to Title I schools. (laughs) And not to say that, I didn't have fulfilling experiences in those spaces because I absolutely did educationally. And it was clear, um, when we were sharing books, um, when <laughs> literally like, you can see like the difference between the educ like that's the physical space where you're being schooled as compared to other folks who come from privilege and worth, worth almost for me, like, right. Wealth was worth worthy of the better educational resources in space. So
3: ending up at Howard was an experience because it's not necessarily a space for
2: people who are of the D.C. Washington, D.C. community. Um, I don't think that Howard University has ever been that space. It's been a space for the Black elite. It's been a space for Black intellectuals um, who typically aspire to different They already have different values and they aspire to wealth. And so coming from Chillum, Maryland, which is like Hicktown for some of these folks who are coming to Howard for what's supposed to be a curated Black experience, was very interesting. It was my first time being around rich Black folk and learning more about their thoughts and perceptions of people who are poor. It was the first time I had ever been in a space where I heard people like me who were from the area, from the city, born in the city, being referred to as locals and in a derogatory way and by Black folk. And so my, this journey through higher ed has always been messy because my experiences have primarily, with the exception of graduate school, have been with Black folks and class has always been very prominent to who gets and who doesn't. And there have always been these small exceptions that I, or these exceptions to the rules that I've been able to find my way into because of my intellect. And it's interesting, even in that, because of that, that intelligence, I've always found. People will find resources for me, but even in finding the resources, there's still this, there's this erasure of the poverty that I still live in and exist within you know it's like she's smart let's get her these resources like and it's like this it's it's just the smart and then I always end up thinking well what about the person who doesn't have and doesn't have the like intellectual capacity that I do or doesn't do the work that I do a lot of the work that I do has been driven so much by trauma a lot of the skills that I've acquired throughout my educational experience has been trauma. My work experience has been trauma. Many people know that I know a lot of people and I have many jobs. It's because I've always had to find a way to make money. And I've used this mind <laughs> to always do so. Whether it's grants, whether it's any of these advocacy positions, facilitation positions, all of it. Also in the interest of serving like, what I think is right. And that's something that I think I'm very proud of. But this is (laughs) trauma-based. I would very much like to have had a a very dedicated, sometimes single set of this is what I do. This is what I focus on, not this is what I need to do in the moment. Otherwise, I might not have this job. And this is what needs to be done. I'm advocating for this group of people where Black immigrants, these resources already aren't available. I just have to push through and make things happen. So yeah, I don't know. When I think about this, just intertwined educational and like working experience and journey. Now, poor a poor immigrant kid from Chillum that's ended up and been in so many different spaces, even at like seats with people
3: who carry significant amounts of power.
0: I wanna, I wanna stick with this for a little bit. Um, and I hope you you both don't mind. And just tell me when you know you need to pause or stop or what we need to do. But I wanna stick with this. And then I wanna continue with you for a little mm-hmm. bit because when we've talked, we kind of mentioned this term, which I'm not sure if it's a term which is outside of this conversation, but we call it the broke rich paradigm um, for so-called middle-class educated black women. Particularly in this case, black women immigrants or black women with immigrant backgrounds, and I want to us to talk through this concept a little bit more. Um, I'm wondering what what do you what do you what do we mean by the broke rich paradigm, and how does it show up in our lives, uh, particularly the lives of black women who come from immigrant backgrounds who are supposedly middle-class because of either their proximity to power, but that aren't necessarily powerful in any way, whether it be class, what? well, you know, we're talking about middle-class, but, you know, how how this class is very nebulous and very um, paradoxical in many ways. So what would you, what do we mean by that? I think... So, it can definitely attest to several different things. Uh, I think number
2: one, when people in particular hear a PhD or they hear like a university name and then in particular attached to a Black immigrant woman, like being able to access this space, there's already a, a, a significant amount of exceptionalism that's already sort of associated with her and her existence within that space, um, whether that's what she ascribes to or not. And so, already from there, like I, I definitely have can recall being in conversations with families, like, "Oh, you big time! You at the university, huh? Right? Different things like that." Like, mm-hmm. and I think a lot of diff- a lot of us, in different ways, different languages, dialects, can relate to like different sayings like that. You're attached to this place, this name, so you must have this proximity to this power, and then also the work that you do. And the work that we do, I think, in particular as researchers, as folks who are um, are in collaboration with international partners, we do work that takes us out of the country, and that mobility, like to people, also signals wealth. But people don't understand, like, no, this was a grant proposal, <laughs> or that, and the money in and of itself is not entirely to me. This is not play. This is work, and a, a significant amount of work goes into what we do. But there's also like, I think a general misunderstanding of actually what it even means to be an academic or a scholar. Like people don't know the work that's attached to the writing, the workshops, the facilitation, all the different things. They kind of just think we're good at it because we've been good at doing all the things. We've been good at navigating all the systems. We've been signing papers. We've been putting writing letters like from childhood days. Right. So we've always known and had to adapt it. So I think a lot of these different just I think larger collective understandings of what it means for a black immigrant woman to be attached to a university within our community. It attributes to this. Like people think we got it. Um and then and then we also, because we've made it, we've made it, quote unquote. And we have resources. We do give to family as, as often and as much as we possibly can, whether it's financial, whether it's intellectual, you know, whether it's logistical, like logistics all the time, you know, people don't even like all the time, like people just associate like this expectation with us. You got it. You good. You've been supporting me forever. And there are ways that oftentimes it doesn't even feel like you have the space to interrupt that.
1: Hmm. Yeah. Mm. There's um so much in what you're saying, Nana, right? Like there's the helping our families like separate a sense of status from like money and wealth, right? That your attachment to these mm-hmm. elite institutions means that there also comes some like financial benefit, right? And that's not always true. Um and also that, like, for me, this broke rich paradigm also looks like not only was my education not just for me, right, or for myself, right, but also not only is my paycheck just for me, um, right, that I have been financially supporting my family, primarily my mom, uh, on occasion some of some of my my siblings um, since I've had a job. Right like my first job was at 15 and at 15 I knew that I was putting away money for myself and also contributing to help my mom pay rent, buy groceries, have pocket money throughout the day and that has never stopped. Um and as I have gotten older and am moving towards trying to, to build my own family, right? I'm always making decisions based on how am I still going to be able to supplement and financially support my mom? How am I, you know, I'm not in New York City right now, um, but I am still the person that is called on to fill out insurance forms that is called, you know, my mom is still on Section 8 rent-controlled housing, right? Every year I'm filling that out. Um, I am the person that my... Brothers will call on when they're like, "You know, can I just can I just hold two hundred dollars right for a little bit, and I'm like, "I know you see that, like yes, I have these degrees, yes, I have this university job, and um right i I am a notorious saver because when things go down, I am who my family turns to." Mm-hmm. Right. Like I have had to have I've had to set some hard boundaries with my family around um, money, in particular, like not going into debt for them. Um, And so part of my trauma response is to hoard the little money that I have, not even to build wealth for myself before like that rainy day when something happens and we just got to have money on debt. Right. Um, that I know I'm that person for my family. And so this brokerage paradigm looks like my money isn't my mm-hmm. own always. Mm-hmm. Right. My money is I'm not just saving money for like a down payment on a house, right? I'm also saving money because I know that if something happens and my mom needs somebody to come through for her, it's very likely only going mm-hmm. to be me. Right. Maybe my brothers will be able to help here and here and there, but it's going to be me. And it has been me. Yeah, we're there mm-hmm. we
3: are the
2: insurance policy and we are the retirement plan and we are the four oh one k we are the savings like we have literally become the 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 financial institution within the family. And people mm-hmm. are okay with that and because we're women, right? We must take care of things. Mm-hmm. And it's just so it's so dangerous, and it's not just black American women. I' do want to say that. like it's black mm-hmm. women across borders, like no matter where we are. Mm-hmm. And it's so dangerous. It's mm-hmm. so dangerous because there's also, in particular, I think for black feminist women, there's a real commitment to family. And figuring out the best ways to set these boundaries, even to have the language. And to navigate it in a way that's true to our feminist ideals, but also to just our needs as humans, is hard. It took me a very long time to figure out what that looks like and to even have the language for their expectations and why this was the expectation. And I think conversations with both of you helped me really solidify what was like what was happening and what I was having to navigate. We were navigating. Mm
0: So i want to I want to pick up on that some more. I want us to kind of go into that some more because we're talking about expectations, but we're talking about, I think, two sets of expectations, I think, our own expectations that we have for ourselves, um, and then the expectations of our families. And so I'm wondering, how do we know that this is their expectation of us? Um, and what might that expectation be? Is that expectation one that is okay. um Generational, for instance, does it, does it, does it mean that it is never ending? Are you, are, are you the, are we actually, <laughs> um, are we, um, are we always supposed to continue doing this? Um, because our families get larger, right? There's no, our, our children, our, our siblings get children or our, our, you know, we have cousins and stuff like where does this expectation end? Do you think, is that an expectation? How, well, first of all, how do we know that this expectation exists and where does this expectation stop? Mm.
1: Man. uh, um, (laughs) So I know explicitly, right? Like it, it was not, it was not implied in my, in my household. Right. Like my mother was very clear. Um, And even, like, in the ways that my mother took care of her own mother, right, it was very clear that this was an expectation, but also that my mother would regularly say, particularly in moments when she was just short on rent, short on the light bill, right, Um, short, just short on cash, short on money, um, you know, and would regularly say, like, I, you know, I can't wait for you all to grow up and have jobs um, and take care of me for a change, um, and so that for me uh, as a um I'm so sensitive, so empathetic, um and as a kid overly identified with my mom, and so you know to be the person that was providing the emotional support for my mom, right at eight, nine as she's on the floor and crying because she's like there is a crisis over this household like literally iuna crisis right that was my mom um because she was always strapped for cash right because there was never enough money um to keep a roof over our, our heads um to pay rent like i really took that on and made the connections that like this is what you do and also this is what my mother needs right like my mother needs my support for her peace of mind for her well-being um Right. And also, like as a Dominican woman, you are just raised to be dutiful and obedient and to put other people's needs first. Right. You are raised to be a caregiver first, um, not an individual. And I naively believed that it was like this happened recently and it helped and it helped me frame like, oh, like in some ways I still buy into um some version of an American dream or of social mobility and independence, right? And financial independence. Um, because I'm the middle child, I'm one of three children and the and the only girl. Uh and you know, my brother was like, if anything happens to me, you know, make sure that my kids get an education. Make sure that an education is a priority. And there was a way that I was like, you know, my brother is somewhat Um, independent, right? He has his own business. I was just like, he's going to be okay. Um, Is the assumption that I was making. My siblings are good. Like, all I have to worry about is making sure that my mom is okay. Right. I'm really clear that my mom is going to move in with me. Right. That, that I will be her caregiver. Um, And that conversation hit me like, oh, like there is an expectation that as the woman, as the girl child, as a future matriarch that you are also taking care of the next generation, and maybe that looks like financial, but maybe that that's also emotional, additional emotional labor that is um, additional care, care work that I am now like oh this was just mm-hmm. put on me as I'm also thinking about what it looks like to have to do this with my own kids and my own family that I'm trying to raise, mm-hmm. and so I underestimated how generational this is and made assumptions that being in the US and that my generation right my my generation and my family who is doing somewhat better financially than my mother's generation right that there would be less interdependence um and actually i don't even think that that's the correct word right because the care is is not unidirectional mm. it is Jasmine do this Jasmine, make sure these things are okay. Um, and it is less so like, Jasmine, what do you need? Because there's an assumption Jasmine got it Mm -hmm. right. Jasmine has always had it. Jasmine has always held it down. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I am in the process of figuring out like, how do I name like Jasmine don't always got it. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Right. Um, some of these expectations are unreasonable, right? Like Um, or aren't, or shouldn't be reasonable, right. As we think about the full humanity of women and not only seeing women as caretakers or fixers or safety nets and safety networks. Um, so yeah, so I'm doing a lot of work around that for myself and with my own family, but just realizing that like, it does not end, um, with my generation that it is, I am seeing the writing on the wall that it's gonna be extending into multiple generations.
3: Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I mean, and it's just, honestly, it's a thing, it's a pre-colonial
2: thing. It's very, um, the gendered expectations of care, very clear, across Africa and its diaspora. And I, when I think about my own family, the expectations for me to be, and maybe not caretaker in a maternal way, like in terms of a mother. Because I think one thing within my family, I was very clear about um, there's certain expectations that I had for myself in terms of what my future family would look like. I didn't want one. And a lot of that had to do with, or I didn't want to have children. And a lot of that had to do with living amongst the family that was very, very abusive. And I think one of the things that was very prominent was also very harmful ideals around finances and money Um, to the point that it almost, it feels like when I think about just different expectations in particular around gender in my family, and my household, I know these are things that other African women experience, other African immigrant girl children experience. And it's very explicit. If you're the one who makes it out, you're the one who's caretake, And a lot of that is um, inherited from colonialism, the colonial experience for sure, um,
3: intersecting with these different ideals around education.
2: When I was growing up, it was very clear, um, education is key. Education is your way out. And education is the way that you take care of the rest of the family. Because like me getting the degrees, getting the credentials would then result in the money. And for many Africans, like people make jokes about these things. And I'm sure folks watch uh, the different you know, comedians expand on like how for Africans, uh, doctor, lawyer, engineer, like very, very narrow, very like particular professional, like professions that are valued. Law uh, is another one that's where I was projected to go right there's no time for anything else that's not essential that doesn't make money, and that doesn't take care of us and that means you're not you're not doing what you need to do as a good african woman as a good african girl child um, yeah, and I think some of that contributed
3: to like i i knew that I knew that that would um I, because of how I was socialized and a lot of it, they went to colonial school.
2: So colonial school did function like that. Only one person, maybe two people make it out and do well. And that's what yields like material benefit and wealth. And I deeply believe that. Like, and and I, I felt like that was so integral to my survival that I pushed myself so hard. Didn't ask for help as well, because when can a black woman ask for help? it was sometimes I just didn't feel like I had that, not even amongst my family, because I always had to show up for them. I think once time I was talking to Jasmine one time and processing this, but the way the expectations were everybody expected for me to have it so much so that I expected to have it, even though when I didn't have it that I'm literally. Working like I'm pulling myself up by my own bootstraps, and I ain't got no boots. I ain't got no boots, and I know so much of that was, you're the one who made it out. You're the one who was supposed to do A, B, and C. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure if I veered off. I don't know mm-hmm. if there's anything there, but I just
1: no. I think there is Nana, like there. What I hear in your story is really like the, there's a sense of disappointment. Um, And I don't know if some of that is some self-disappointment or disappointment others may be putting on you because you are not fitting your trajectory while people projected one one thing. Like your life trajectory isn't fitting um, that narrative, that image that they had for you.
2: Absolutely. It's a generational thing. I could definitely say amongst Africans, especially educated African immigrants, and it's not a conversation that we have. There's a very particular image of what we are supposed to be and what we're supposed to do. You are to have your degree by the time you're 20, your first degree, your bachelor's degree by the time you're 21. There's no break, there's no gap year. You go from high school. To your bachelor's degree you get a degree in something that's practical um if it's not an mba that you're pursuing or something like within the financial space it must be engineering it must be the hard sciences it must be law it must be lucrative mm-hmm. it must be respectable it must look good by the time you're 25 you should be engaged by the time you're 27 maybe the first few kids like it's a very particular thing it's definitely driven um by christianity but also I would say actually like religion at large, Christianity and Islam also underbids it for us as migrants and, and back home as well. But they're very like particular images of what it is to make it and to do well. Um, and it's a collective like generational, uh I think conversation and like sort of deconstructing of what it means for us to be successful and happy and make it. I see a lot of, in particular African women on digital space, expanding on that and talking about that because it's not expected for you to be a journalist or a singer or a dancer, anything that's frivolous or artful or, you know, and it, you know, it's a very, and then sometimes I still struggle with this ideal, like I'm 30 and I haven't secured financial, like I'm not financially secure as I want to be. I'm 30 and there's still days where I'm like, should I still pursue the law degree? Because I've been so like, that is what I'm supposed to do. Um, when I was in communication with my family before I decided to be estranged, that still was a conversation. Yeah, this PhD is cool. You know, you're talking about, I don't even think they really knew what I was focusing on. Like, but the idea was, well, maybe you'll still have time to get your law degree. You know, so very clear, clear ideals to what it means to make it be upwardly mobile, to make it to the middle class, especially for African Americans.
0: Yeah. I want to pursue this underlying theme that I feel is coming out um, as we're having this discussion um, about family expectations. And that is the theme of trauma. Um, I have two questions specifically about trauma, one related to how do you think the expectations um, that you that have been put on you and that Nana you have mentioned are particularly from a colonial system and that is very gendered? How have how how have those experiences with these expectations produce traumas for you particularly? And then the second question, which I'd like you to kind of also tackle as you are thinking about this first question, is How has the focus on education also produced for you maybe a traumatic experience in terms of having to squash or deaden or curtail your own desires outside of the pursuit of education? Like, for instance, I used to do drama uh, growing up. Um, I also used to be an athlete. And whenever my report card came home and it was not up to snuff, I was banned from everything. I was banned from drama. I was banned from athletics because it was seen as taken away from what I should be focusing on, and that is my academics. And so um, I remember having a conversation with my own mother, which was, you know, you see all these people competing um, at world class levels in athletics. If you had just let me run, I could be rich right now, (laughs) (laughs) which is probably not the case. But um, I enjoyed that stuff, right? Right. Um, and so how, again, the questions are, how have these expectations, uh, particularly the expectations that are um, rooted in the colonial experience of our elders, uh, produced traumas for you? And how have those traumas or how has that push toward education also caused you to experience uh, some type of loss regarding your own desires for yourself?
3: I am- When I was in high school. My um, good friend, who was also Ghanian,
2: we were in the car and her mom was driving us
3: somewhere. It's our senior year
2: of high school. And my friend is really excited because she's
3: um, at that time majoring in visual arts. That's her entering major for school. And I can't remember
2: what the conversation was before, but I remember my friend saying to her mom, who was a older Ghanaian woman, maybe at the time she was like in her, well, I, I'm saying older, she was probably in her forties, but still there's a, an a, a age difference between us generations, obviously. My my friend is like, well, what about doing things that, you know, you're passionate about?
3: This woman literally stopped the car, pulled over the car to tell us, we did not come here for passion. Mm. And I always remember that um, because it was so just
2: visceral and it was so, it was almost an insult. Not almost, it was. It was an insult to their journey here, the sacrifices they made, that we would talk about going to school for things that we were passionate about that didn't have anything to do with money and didn't have anything to do with clout or um, anything that was lucrative. That stuck with me. Um, and that's a common theme I think a lot of us have experienced. And so I I think it's only until the pandemic maybe I've had to actually think about, well, yeah, what is what is joy?
3: What is happiness in the context of work? Um, That was just non-existent. Um, And also like there's an, production and utility is a big thing. Being useful or rather not wanting
2: to be useless. Uh, This is language that I find in particular, a lot of Ghanaian Americans are familiar with in our households, a lot of probably West Africans. When you don't do well in school, you're useless. Uh, when you don't achieve, you're useless. Everything has to be, you must, whatever you're doing, you must be doing it and doing it well and superb, number one. like So I have these very unhealthy ideals around productivity. Um, and it's also taken a very long time to figure out what it is I enjoy. A lot of things I was just doing because I knew it was what I was good at. And in a lot of ways, I don't know if I was entirely proud of myself for being able to do those things because I knew it didn't make my family proud. So it's like a very cultural, but also very like intimate like, experience when I think about this, these different ideals that they, my family and our families inherited from the colonial experience. My parents, my friends' parents, many of us who are immigrants here, African immigrants,
3: their, their parents didn't have childhoods.
2: They also, too, like, they were not brought up to think of, like, what makes you happy, what's joy, and all these things, and what, how that can tie into your everyday life. You work,
3: you make money, you take care of what you need to take care of. That's it. And so I think that the the trauma is in and of itself is, like, having lived a very long time, not even being able to access joy.
2: Um, And not feeling like it was something that I could produce or make for myself or create for myself, not even thinking it was necessary. Because, and then like abstaining from things, like you still have not made it. You still haven't done good enough. You haven't worked hard enough. So how dare you try to enjoy things in life? Um, Definitely feeling guilty about even the smallest pleasures because nothing is ever enough. You know, nothing is ever enough. The degrees are never enough.
3: There's
1: so much in um, which you share, Nana, that I resonate with. Um, I think something that I'm I'm holding um, and that I'm trying to give language to is the trauma of colonization or even the aftermaths of colonization and coloniality looks like constantly being in survival mode. Um, that scarcity and precarity mm-hmm. are just a fact of life. Um, and we can get into how that becomes reality, right? Like how capitalism exploits, extracts resources, um, And it's deeply tied to to white supremacy, right? And that the cost of that looks like um, our families, our ancestors having less um, and trying to do more with less. Um, And that very much, that that sense of precarity, of scarcity, of there not being enough um, came with us to the US, right? Was very much a part of like how my family mm-hmm. thought about life. Um, and that there was for me, it like I saw how for my relatives, it it just took one, it just took one incident. I won't even say like it just took one mistake. It literally took, it took one incident, right? To, for it to look like your life was derailed. Right. For, for you to end up in prison, um, for you to have to drop out of school, for you to end up homeless, right? It just took one thing to happen. Um, and that I was really acutely aware of as someone who regularly came home to eviction notices, um, who regularly was sent home from school for failure to pay tuition. Um, and living in that state, of not having enough really made me risk averse, right? Like very similar to you. I did the things that I knew I was going to excel at, that I knew I was good at, mm-hmm. um, that seemed to lay out um, a path for success, right? That is actually just about um, access to education and and upward mobility, Um and that I am now in a place where I have more security than I did growing up. And I am still living in a constant wondering, like, when is the other shoe going to drop? Mm-hmm. Right? Like, I remember um, we'd just moved into, like, our new apartment and, like, this, this nice neighborhood. And I was by the elevator and I just felt, I felt my stomach drop because I was, because I was overcome by a fear of like, all of this could be taken away. Mm-hmm. And when I sit back and think about like, realistically, how, right? Like I, I am now middle-class, right? I, I have a secure job. Um, and that fear of going back to poverty is really real. That fear of not being able to provide for My mom is really real, right? It's why I really thought long and hard about pursuing a PhD. Um, It's also why I'm pursuing my PhD part-time because I was just like, financially, I cannot afford to not have a job. I cannot afford um, to not be able to pay my mom. Like I have my mom's light bill on auto pay. It is the only bill on auto pay because I am so deeply traumatized By the times that my mother has called me, because she is sitting in the dark in her New York City apartment, because the light got, got cut off. And I'm just like, mom, I literally do not have $200 to my name to be able to pay your light bill right now. And like the agony of not being close to home, but understanding that my mother is sitting in her apartment in the dark with some candles in the middle of the summer. In the heat with no air conditioning. My mother is now 60 years old. Um, At the time, she was 55, and I was inconsolable, right? And so the idea of my mother having to go without um, is what drives a lot of my taking more on, taking on more work. It drives my sense of perfectionism, right? Because yes, I am rewarded for my perfectionism um i know that it's going to in my mind right it like ensures um a level of stability right like i still have a job cuz i did well i performed well um and it also doesn't allow me to rest right like i really struggle with rest i really struggle with allowing like listening to my body and allowing it to just be um and i know that that is because in the back of my mind i'm always thinking about when is the other shoe going to drop? Yeah. When, is, when is the thing that's going to happen that is going to derail all of this hard work? Because that is what I grew up in. That is what poverty taught me, that it just takes one thing.
0: Yes. yeah, yeah. I want to, I'm glad that we um, have talked a little bit about the overarching colonial um, rootedness of what we're discussing today in terms of the way in which these traumas show up from expectations, right? Because I think in thinking about it broadly as a colonial response and a survival mechanism, it removes some of the blame from um or the individual blame that we might have for this trauma uh, from ourselves and from our families and our communities and from our parents who put these expectations on us. Um, and I'm not saying that they're blameless. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> but I think it helps us to kind of contextualize it. But it also, in my mind, also does something else. Because now that I'm also, now that we're able to say, well, this is also like Nana, you said, you know, um, they didn't have a childhood. Um, and so, you know, what does it mean to have passions? Just do what you, you, you have use value, right? Um, and, and, and Jasmine, you said something along the same lines. And so I'm thinking, like, now that we are able to, to say, well, part of this is a, colo- a response to colonialism and to white supremacy and to all the other things that stem from that. How are we able to set boundaries? Because then that's my other question. Like, because, <laughs> the, you know, for me, um, you know, Hurricane Elsa came through Barbados a few weeks ago um, and damaged my parents' homes. and, um, my first thing is that I need to swoop in and help my parents because that's what we do, right? Um, but I was so overwhelmed by so many other things. And I had a friend of mine say, well, you need to set boundaries. And I'm like, I hear that all the time and I know this, but how is that possible? Like what in a time where you know you are the only person who can actually do something, how do you set boundaries and know that we're saying that this is not necessarily that our parents are putting expectations on us arbitrarily but because it stems from this colonial past and their experiences what do boundaries mean (laughs) so let me start
3: it is because Mm -hmm. i will say this It's so hard. It's so difficult. And I think about like even
2: my experiences with my family. Just even basic like basic things, small things, not even small things, but like things that I typically wouldn't do. I don't go to church. I would go to church for
3: my family. You know, I don't like make space um for harmful Language,
2: like in my life in particular, if I knew it's, if I know it's deeply like rooted in oppression, I made a lot of space for my family. We make a lot of space for our families, and I think it's like it's the compassion and love for them, even in their complexity, and so I, I want one thing that was really helpful was being in community with other black women and in particular black immigrant women who understood this very particular experience about. Being based here and also having responsibilities to family here and then back home, you know, like understanding what this life was of like constant remittances and helping people navigate legal space and all of these things, even in the complexity of our relationships with each other, because they're not great, uh, you know, within all of our families because of these gendered things. So being in part of like friendship with women who are like, let's talk this through, let's like talk through like this how you're feeling about this expectation that's being put on you. And in particular, the folks that you're having to or that you feel indebted to or that are asking for things or in need of things, like helping me sit with a lot of that. Because I think one thing that's number one, I think we've been conditioned to think that if we don't give something or we don't do something everything's going to fall apart. Jasmine spoke to that about her personal self, but we also feel like that with our family. If we don't give something, no no one will figure it out. It won't get done. And everybody around us relies on us thinking like that. They do. Mm. And the reality is they will figure things out. We do have to be bold enough to say this is what I can and can't do. It's hard. You should talk it through with your home girls. Revert like rehearse it out a little bit, quite honestly. Think through what the aftermath looks like. Cause it's gonna be hard. We know how our folks are. Maybe some folks are not gonna wanna talk to you. Maybe some folks will wanna be passive aggressive. Maybe for some folks it's just gonna be just conflict, very assert- like, present. And we gotta do what we need to do to survive. Like. Black women have been writing about being exhausted by the expectations that society has on us and that our families have on us for centuries. And I think this is a time in particular where we do need to sit in like, yes, it's difficult and I've been there too. It's hard that it doesn't feel good. You're gonna cry, you're gonna hurt. All kinds of feelings are gonna come up, but you do have to create space for it because I, I feel like for me, at the end of the day, I was like, do I feel good in all of this? Is this helping me? Is this serving me? And what I say I want to be committed to for myself and the family I and community I want to build. And with my family, the majority of them, and in particular their expectations of me, it, it wasn't acceptable anymore. It was too much... It was too grounded in this mythology that they had of me being a strong black woman, able to navigate it all and figure out it all and not even really putting or centering my well-being at all through it all. And I think that's a hard thing for us to sit with as well. Our families Mm -hmm. are not centering our well-being when they allow us to persist in our just singular bodies as entire financial institutions for our families it's not okay it's not okay it took me a lot of therapy a lot of conversations to get to that point but I I I, I think it's important to at least like sit with how is it making you feel sis
0: yes
1: mm-hmm. yeah I don't have much to add to that um I will say that for me, the process of setting boundaries are still hard. Mm -hmm. They are still on a case by case basis, Mm -hmm. right? Depending like really thinking about me and where I am and am I actually in a position um, to be able to support in additional ways. Um, And something that I'm really sitting with and processing is how a lot of me giving and showing up for my family is is not only because I care about my family because i I love them deeply, but that it is also me still having internalized these ideas of what it means to be a good daughter
3: mm-hmm.
1: right, and I am regularly bumping up against this narrative, this image of being a good daughter and what it means for me to live. This liberated and authentic and genuine life um, that centers, right, my joy, my needs, and that those often, those are always going to be bumping heads. Right. Um, and so I find myself asking, you know, am I doing this because I want to, because I'm, because I'm in a position to, because it makes sense, for me also financially like to be ensuring that i'm taking care of myself or am i doing this out of a sense of indebtedness mm-hmm. and it will always be a combination of both right um but if i am overextending myself or sacrificing um a pivotal and essential part of myself in order to do this right it it is me recognizing that there's some self sabotaging taking place yeah um and so I'm working through. How do I let go of this image of being the good daughter, right? Of 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 goodness. Um, because that's also part of my trauma, right? That is also harming me, trying to live up to an, in other people's image of me, other people's expectations of me. Um, and how do I move in ways that are authentic to who Jasmine is right now? Mm-hmm. Right? Not the Jasmine from 15 years ago who Every penny she made went into the household, right? Um, and so mm-hmm. lots of therapy, lots of conversations with other Black women. As Nana shared, like Nana is one of my closest homegirls who just brings me back. <laughs> She's mm-hmm. just like, <laughs> Jasmine. <laughs> um, you know, she and our, our homegirl to me are like, they bring me back. They bring me mm-hmm. back. And they have seen me in tears saying no to my family, if it meant um, that saying yes would be like self-sabotage on my end, yeah. right? If it meant sacrificing um, my needs, like Mm -hmm. essential needs, not wants, but my needs. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And saying no is hard. Mm -hmm. I mean, saying no is so hard. I think about my own experiences where um, I really sometimes resent the fact that I want to say no, but in this situation, I feel like I need to say yes. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> I'm sure you get what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. And I and I and there's this sense of resentment that comes from that. Like, mm-hmm. you know, I remember talking to my best friend. I'm like, you know, like I'm I I don't know what they like. No one. I have a few people that call me just to see how I'm doing. And then I know if this phone if the phone rings and is this number. That they're going to call me because mm-hmm. they want something. And I resent, I resent that call. I'm resenting that call. I'm resenting the fact that I know <laughs> that that's what that call is going to be about. And it's going to be about nothing else. They're not going to check in to see how I'm doing. And, um, and I think about also like the need for they have expectations of me. But I need to also have them know, understand what my expectations of them are. Mm-hmm. Um, because the expectations, as you rightly said earlier, Jasmine, are very one-sided. And so they know what they know that I know what they expect, but I'm not sure if they know what I expect. Mm-hmm. I haven't been very clear on what my expectations mm-hmm. are or should be of them um, to check in on me or to call me, other than just asking for something, because I've not made that clear. Because, like you said. I'm going off of, oh, I'm going to be there as the good daughter, sister, mm-hmm. cousin, uh, niece when everybody wants it, because that's what is expected. But what what have I told them what my expectations are of them? Mm-hmm. You know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm.
2: I will um, say I do want to reemphasize
3: having your girl, checking in with your homegirls, your friends is helpful, too. I'm your homegirl. I'm not your sister. Like mm-hmm. in terms of the one that you grew up with in your family or your cousin mm-hmm. or mm-hmm.
2: your mom and them. Like I can, I provide with as much context as you provide me, I can provide like some nuanced, compassionate like advice mm-hmm. and support. And then if we need to model it through like what you have to say,
3: mm-hmm. we can
2: do that. Because I know sometimes people think it's silly, but no, they are like hard conversations That I had to prepare myself like, like, what am I going to say? What is this? How is this probably going to land? And talking through that and like enabling, like enacting like care work amongst friends has also Mm -hmm. been helpful because your friends are then the community, the chosen family. So it's something to sit with. Because sometimes you just need your homegirl to be like, um, girl, yes, y'all grew up together. Yes, this
3: thing. Yes. And no. Mm
0: -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm and this is why no exactly yeah yeah mm-hmm. exactly i want to switch gears a little bit to talk about your work situation um and how how these obligations expectations if they do show up in terms of your own work and how you experience work how you go about work how you engage work how you engage people at work <laughs> you can you can Find something in that question, I, I think. <laughs> My God, I'm sitting
1: with I I don't say no to work.
3: Mm-hmm. That's yeah. how
1: this about. Um, I'm sitting with the good daughter, the good student, um, the people pleaser in me. Um, does not say no to work and that also that is that is also my trauma and that's also a survival mechanism right because sometimes i i fall into the trap of if i do more if i show how indispensable i am right i will still have work um and, and I know, we know that, that ain't true. Right. That that's why I said I know that's the trauma in me because <laughs> rational jasmine is like these institutions ain't loyal and you can easily be replaced. Exactly. Mm. <laughs> right. And so there's there, you know, I am, I am holding all parts of me right now. Right. I am holding that trauma, Jasmine is just like make yourself indispensable, make yourself needed. Um and rational jasmine, the the part of the jasmine that like is invested in her liberation and committed to her liberation is like these institutions don't care about you. The work will always be there. Mm -hmm. It will never stop. Mm -hmm. And you can be replaced today. You can be replaced today. Um, And so that is a constant and ongoing tension, right? And that the check-ins for me um, look like prioritizing Just my me time, like me, prioritizing me. Um, It looks like meditating and talking to, you know, my inner child, my traumatized self to be like, I know why you're doing this. Right. And know that. There will be other opportunities, right, that you don't have to take everything on. Um, Yeah, it's it's an ongoing conversation, but it looks like I also don't say no at work. And I am teaching myself to say no more often and to walk away. Mm -hmm.
3: I think for me, like it would show up. I'm taking work that I don't even necessarily want to do. I just know I'm good at it. And (laughs) I know that
2: I need a check and I don't have time to, or at least I thought I don't have the time to explore and think about what I truly care about or how this aligns or doesn't align with my values or my needs. Like there was no check-in. There was none of that. It's just work, 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 and make sure nobody is able to question
3: anything. So everything must be tight, super tight. And that also like would produce like these
2: anxieties of sharing work. Like I, some, there were times where I just can't share anything with anyone because I'm also afraid. Like, what if this is not good? What if this is not perfect? How is that going to look? How, what are the like potential ramifications? What's gonna and just paranoid and anxious and also having like navigated nonprofit space and higher ed space, understanding the politics of these places. I'm big, tall, and dark. Ain't nobody necessarily checking out for me, and people don't necessarily want me in the room there are a lot of people who would prefer me not. And so it's like figuring out how to always produce, be on top of it, still be in these spaces and like in particular advocacy spaces in the interest of serving the community. But also like, it's funny because when people see me or hear me talk or anything, they they don't really know um, because of some of these things that I've even named about my physical presence. There's a way that I've had to, I have to prep before I even show up in a room. Like extremely, like this is how I'm gonna show up. This is what I'm gonna lean in on. These are the black, this, these are the black folk in the room. This is probably how I have to show up for the black folk. This is what this looks like for white folk. Um, and figuring out what, who do I get to be today? Or who do mm-hmm. I have to lean in today for things to get done? Do I have to be a strong black woman? Do I have to be professor? Do I have to be? All these different things, all of these different ways of sort of like figuring out, not being able to exist rather, just exist in a workspace, Mm -hmm. constantly paranoid about how I'll show up and what that will mean for me and my survival in this space and Mm -hmm. constantly feeling like I'm going to be the first one out the door if things
3: go down. And in my experience, that's actually been true. Um, and so that's hard mm-hmm. to hold as well.
2: Um, so, yeah, a lot of traumas with, like, just being in the workplace and, like, producing and making sure, like, how can I even exist? Because, like, even my physical body for some people is just enough for them to not want me to be there. And that can be skinful.
0: hmm Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. mm-hmm. Yeah, I think. Ah, uh, I think. I in hearing both of you, I was also thinking about how it also shows up for me. And I think in the position as um, you know, as a a a, a professor at a a predominantly white institution, um, it shows up in that I I also feel this obligation to my students and to all the black folks on campus, mm-hmm. and it's hard for me to to feel as though if if a student, for instance, comes to me and they need this thing, like I also can't say no because it could mean that they're hanging on by a string somewhere um, in this institution, whether it be grids or mm-hmm. uh, something, something, there's something. We're always in crises where our bodies show up as crisis mm-hmm. um, in these institutions. And sometimes I feel is. Me, I'm the I'm the person in between their survival and their non-survival in this place. And if I say no, it could mean it could be an absolute catastrophe. Um, but I can't say yes to everyone and to everything because then I'm exhausted and I'm stressed out and it shows up in my body and in the way how I show up from my own family um, in terms of my immediate family, like my nine year old son, you know, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so that's how it shows up for me in terms of that. I have to be the good professor, the one who is the person who the students can rely on. If there's nobody else they can rely on in this space, it is me. Um, and and that's a problem. And that's a problem that is obviously larger than my own internalized Try, goodness trying to be good mm-hmm. it's all is an institutional problem of course right mm-hmm. um yeah. yeah
1: yeah i think what um stands out to me and, and what both of you are, are sharing is that we carry the stress in our bodies oh yes, right that it does not work stress work stress does not stay at work mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. that we that we bring it into um our personal lives that um there is a hypervigilance uh, that comes with how we are trying to navigate work, how we are trying to navigate being excellent at the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we also, in moments when, at least for myself, in moments when I think I failed, I did this wrong, um, right? My perfectionism kicks in, uh, my my stress responses kick in, mm-hmm. and I Carry that with me through the rest of my day. Yes. Right. It doesn't stay
0: there. It's messy. Like folks talk about folks that have the luxury of talking about, they talk about how you should be able to have these separations. Mm -hmm. It's not that easy. Mm -hmm. These things bleed into each other. I mean, as Nana was talking about her anxiety around sharing her work and, and we both know Nana's work is dope as hell. Mm -hmm. I can say hell, right? Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. Um, you know, Nana's work is absolutely amazing. Um, and I think about when Nana came to visit um, in the fall and I was working on my book and I was telling her, like, the anxiety around just mm-hmm. putting out a whole book um, mm-hmm. about Black folks. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the pressure that I felt, like, this was not going to be good. Mm-hmm. And all the research and all the stuff that went into it and I still felt like this is not going to cut it. Yeah. yeah, It's hard. It's hard. Um, going off of that, I want to ask, I have like two more questions I want to ask you. the The first one is, do you think that the experiences of future Black women, whether they're immigrants or from immigrant families or not, um, would be different from our own experiences? And if so, how might this change?
1: I'm deeply hopeful. I, I am. I, I have to say that I'm deeply hopeful. Um. I love social media and the space that black women have created for themselves in social media, um, where we are openly talking about our traumas, our healing journeys, our ongoing healing, um, where we are openly saying, you know, rest first, rest mm-hmm. is a priority, rest is necessary. Um that we are saying our wholeness matters, right? And that our wholeness is non-negotiable. That gives me hope um, that folks will, that black women in particular, right? Um, will move, move in the world in ways that they have internalized and fully own their worthiness, their enoughness. Um, And that it doesn't come from external validations, right? Like my experience of our conversation so far is that so much of what drives us um, is the external validation, whether that is coming from family, whether that's coming from the workplace. Um, And so I'm deeply hopeful and also know that there is intense and deliberate um, unlearning and healing work that we have to keep doing. Um, but I'm excited that we're doing it in open spaces on social media. Even this, this conversation, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that for me is deeply hopeful. I am encountering young Black women who have a depth and of awareness of self that I did not have at 19, at 20. Um, so yeah. So I am hopeful, and I also know that a lot of a lot of self-work goes behind being able to show up in
3: those ways.: Yes: thank, Yeah, thank you for that, Jasmine. I am definitely not the
2: <laughs> optimist of the group at all. Um, or maybe in some ways I am. maybe in some ways, but not always, quite honestly, but when I in particular look at the body of black feminist work over time and conversations and the spaces we're creating and Jasmine you know, naming that in particular, like the digital space. I am very much compelled to say that things are not going to be the same. And I'm actually deeply invested. And I think a lot of the women, y'all included, that I'm in community with, we are very deeply invested in saying this will not be the same. It cannot be the same. Um, and I think that's always actually driven the work that I've done. Always trying to figure out, figure it out. And, and, you know, stumbling along the way and feeling enormous pressure from family and society and different cultural things, but always in service to something larger. Like I may be experiencing it now, but along the way, I'm going to make sure to have conversations, open spaces to, to have these conversations pull people along, being in community with people along the journey. Like I, there's a deep commitment that I feel and see to that amongst us. Mm-hmm. And I, it, it's not going to be the same.
0: Yeah, I, 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 I think that. so too. I, I, I agree. And I think for me, being in the classroom and every, every year, actually, the cycle of Black women students who are coming into these spaces are v- much more unapologetic than even a few years ago and they are advocating for themselves they aren't taking shit off of no one um and then I also think about um you know we think about family expectations but one of the things which is an expectation that I put on myself not necessarily a family expectation is that I really would love to see a difference for my one and a half year old niece who um is already a feisty little thing. <laughs> but, you know, I want to I want her to be able to learn that she can say no and that her expectations are hers alone and she she doesn't have to be motivated by external forces. Um and that she can be she can figure out who she is and be authentic with that. Um and so I too want to believe that it has to get better. Uh, um yeah, that we we just have to learn and generations after us have to learn that we're enough. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah.
1: Yeah. And can I add that? Sure. It mm-hmm. also, for me, it is seeing Black women realize that they are each other's safety net. Oh, girl. Right? That this, you know, we've talked about, like, we are the safety nets for, for our families. Um, and I don't think we spent enough time talking about like who's a safety net for us, um, mm-hmm. and it is it is Black women who are holding each other up and down, right? Like, um, and so that to me is also a part of that healing and that transformation. Oh yeah, um, just, just getting real specific on the like we got us, right? Black women have each other, and I think that is. World-shifting, um, that we are doing that very publicly, right? That those Black women communities and support networks have always been there, mm-hmm. right? But we are seeing it publicly, and that to me is also part of what is shifting how we relate into one another, but also relating into ourselves and and with our communities. Um, oh, yeah. Like that for me, changed the relationship that I have with y'all, with Tamia, like. Mm-hmm has helped me to be brave right has helped me to be fierce and to not be afraid to name my boundaries and so mm-hmm. recognizing that it doesn't happen alone right we talk a lot about self work but it's self work that's happening
0: in community Maybe. Well. yeah oh yes and i you know i just want to shout out to y'all man it's <laughs> i mean yeah for i know for the last we we've really been you know i've really been able to really <sighs> depend on you um you know with the hurricane and everything
3: mm-hmm.
0: you know nana was the one girl just stop being timid and i mean within a few moments nana jasmine had jumped on the bandwagon too and You know, it was just, y'all have just been holding, you know, it's been a hard summer and y'all have just been holding me down. Writing with y'all together Mm -hmm. was an amazing experience as well. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Nana checks in on me every single day, every day, yo, every day, Mm -hmm. without fail, without fail. Um, And so I really, I think that's, that's something that we need to celebrate, you know. Um, and so, just a shout out to y'all. Thank you both for just being just so amazing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm to tears now. Thank you <laughs> for being so amazing. Yeah, the last question I wanted to ask you is kind of a reflexive question. Um, you know, it's it's a question that is a question about possibilities, but is this is not really possible, right? But if you were able to go back in time and talk to yourself as a child as this black girl child growing up in a working poor community family, um, Jasmine, you know, being sent home from school um, because fees weren't paid or having eviction notices and Nana um, having to get the bus to and from school and then going to an environment like Howard where you didn't feel as though you belong and it was palpable. what would you say to her? What would you say to this Black girl child um, that was you, that
3: would become who you are today? That is so hard. Um, I think for
1: myself, um, it would be, you know, it's it's not always going to be this hard. Um, and that you already have everything that you need. Um, because I know 14, 15-year-old Jasmine mm. very much believed the scarcity of what was around her and didn't see the abundance that was there um, and didn't see her wholeness um and did not understand that mm. um you get to be loved period
3: you don't have to do anything to earn it right you you are
1: enough um and i think about specific moments in my life where if someone had said that to me um I might have been braver. I might have taken additional risks to know that I, I had a there was a support network, right, and all I needed to do was tell them what I needed, what what I needed from them. And so I think if someone had said that to me, um, I would have made some different choices. Um, I would have taken a few adventures. I would have um allowed myself to move out of survival.
3: Mm. I resonate with a lot of that. I think I would have told myself a few things. Um mm-hmm. do not let your family shape so much what you think about yourself and what you can do. Is one of the things I would want her to know. Like, don't let them and their trauma shape how you think you're able to exist in this world, and that includes how you make
2: money, how you like survive, how you like make a living. I would tell her to write more.
3: I like when I, I was thinking about this the other day. I think at the root of everything, I've always just wanted to write.
2: I always wanted to be a writer. And I was afraid to say that a lawyer felt more comfortable. In particular, like the cultural spaces that I was in. It made more sense. There was less questioning. But the questioning always comes, right? So I would tell her to like sit with that. That's your
3: space. That's what makes you happy. It's what you love to do. Don't Don't let anyone tell you that you can't do it. I think definitely I would want to encourage the things, like as a young girl, that made me happy. Writing was one, music was another. And I'm still trying to like, just even access that little girl now. She had to become a, an adult so quickly. Mm-hmm. And sometimes it's hard to even see her. Mm-hmm. But like, mm-hmm. this is, just even having this space is helpful, like for the journey.
0: No, no, you just said something that just touched me so deeply. Yeah, sometimes it's difficult to me to to see her. Sometimes I can't even remember mm-hmm. myself as a as a child. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's it's mm-hmm. <laughs> it's mm, mm-hmm. mm, girl. It's you just you just touched on something, and you know I did. I I did do the law lawyer wrote. I became a lawyer. Um, that shit didn't last. You know, I practiced for maybe a year and a half and then I was like, this shit for the birds. yo." <laughs> <laughs> this ain't what I want to do. <laughs> this ain't good. <laughs> mm. <laughs> ain't nothing about this that says me. Uh, and I remember yeah. calling my mother and saying and crying mom, I can't do this and I don't know what to do with my life. I don't have any skills, but yeah, if yeah, I would have told her, leave the law alone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> he said, it's not it. <laughs>
0: it's ain't it. You know, you don't waste all them years, but I mean, it's it's, it, it it comes in handy every once in a while. But, yeah, I do agree. Sometimes it's hard to see to reach that little girl. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's real hard mm-hmm. to reach her.
2: Yeah. I think I'll also tell, like, and I think for all of our little girls, like, there's no experience that was a waste. Like, we got skills, experience, yeah. like, all the things. We've been in the spaces and acquired mm-hmm. all the skills. Yeah. So maybe you're not a lawyer anymore. Or you don't use that particular skill set all the time, but you can always fall back to it. You use it. But, you know, we have things. we we can, And we can do multiple things. I, I would love to tell myself, girl, you could do all the different things. Because all when I things. look at it now, and that's another thing that I think, Jasmine, you're talking about growing in community with each other as Black women, in particular on these journeys. We are... Creating opportunities for ourselves as mm-hmm. consultants, as public educators, doing all like curators, we're doing a lot of awesome work. And so I would want to tell young me that. And I think a lot of the women I'm around, um, black feminists in particular, have girl children. They're doing a really good job of articulating
3: that, and their daughters are seeing that I can do multiple things.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh yes. Um. <laughs> Y'all, I ain't got no more questions. <laughs> <laughs> um. I just want to give y'all the last say and um, kind of wrapping up this episode. I really enjoyed having y'all on uh, on this episode today. Um, y'all got any last words for our listeners? Black women are dope. We've been dope. Always will be. Dope is fuck. <laughs>
3: Listen to us. That's how I feel. Support our work. And I'm
2: talking not just sharing. I'm talking about material support. If, folk, mm-hmm. if Black women asking for donations, you know the work is for it. If they're fundraisers. It's not just like, I'm like, reference yeah. us, of course.
0: Cite yeah. us. Cite yes. Black women. Yes. Do
2: all the things. And if you have fees or budgeting, whatever, you have money.
0: Listen. Hey, Black women.
2: Listen, that, that money, whether it's a fellowship, a grant, whatever, it makes a difference for us. Because as we've been talking about, we are caretakers for entire families. Mm-hmm. And, and communities. So, so no more this not compensating mm-hmm. or lowballing, Nah.
1: Period. No more.
0: Period. Our guests on today's show have been Nana Brontool and Jasmine Pachardo. We recorded our conversation with Nana and Jasmine on August 12th,
3: 2021.
0: Thanks so much to our guests and thank you for listening. To learn more about our podcast and stay up to date with us, follow us on Instagram and Facebook at StandPointsPod and on Twitter at StandPointsPod1. StandPoints is produced in association with Virginia Tech Publishing Our producer is Joe Fort, and our production assistant is Jenea Amour. For more information about podcasts produced by Virginia Tech Publishing, please visit publishing.vt.edu and choose podcasts from the drop-down menu. Our theme music was arranged by Prince Predator with vocals by Aura Cadet. I'm Andrea Baldwin. Please join us again on the StandPoints podcast.